This morning's reading is from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 to 7, which is in 1191 in the Church Bibles. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to an uh, uh, acknowledgement of, of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. I'm a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. This is the word of God. Thank you. Uh, morning, everyone. If we've not met, uh, my name's Matt Fuller. I'm the vicar here. It'd be lovely to do so uh, afterwards. And um, you're joining us as we're spending a couple of months in this uh, letter that Paul wrote um, to his uh, junior colleague, uh, Timothy, or his best mate, maybe. Uh, certainly, they have uh, they're, they're a dear relationship to his favorite church in Ephesus. And uh, let me pray, and then we'll look at this together. Our great God and Father, you leave us in no doubt of who you are, of what you're like, and we're very grateful for that. Thank you that you communicate so clearly. Please, uh, again this morning, would we understand, and uh, more than that, would we be deeply affected by who you are, your character, your nature, so that we do become more like our great Savior, the Lord Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. Uh, last, so last month I visited um, uh, mission partners in Rwanda uh, that we have, and um, it's a great, great joy to do that. But it made me read, I'd never really read much about the uh, East African revival uh, back in the 1930s. It's the sort of thing, I, I, I knew there was a thing, but I didn't know what the thing uh, was, so I thought well, I should find out, so I started reading a little bit. And um, uh, it seems to have been started by a fairly unassuming Ugandan leader, Simeone Nisimbambi, and he met this uh, English missionary doctor called Joe Church. If you're going to be a missionary, Mr. Church is a pretty good name, I guess. Um, but, uh, and the two of them got together and sort of lamented a little bit. There are lots of Christians in, in East Africa, but um, it's all a bit nominal and, you know, there's no, where's the zeal? Um, they started praying and they decided wherever they would go, they'd call Christians to repent and take the faith seriously. And, uh, oh my goodness, for 50 years, it just exploded. Initially, in terms of the Christians saying, yeah, we've been half-hearted and we must repent of that. And there was every church gathering was full of specific, concrete repentance. I mean, it sounds a bit intense, actually, when you read some of the descriptions, but they created this new word, the abaka. Well, these new Christians were known as the abaka, which means those on fire. All of a sudden, all these Christians were on fire. They were taking their faith so much more seriously. Um, but most wonderfully of all, tens of hundreds of thousands in Rwanda, Uganda, Tanzania, Burundi, the Congo, Sudan, 
I mean, millions in the region became Christians. And is a legacy that if you go there today is still there. I mean, the, the, the Christian influence and actually the, the raw numbers in the culture is extraordinary. But you read descriptions of, of the period, really from the 30s up to the 80s, at a point it just reads like the book of Acts. And, uh, you know, one particular evangelist, uh, in particular Festo, uh, Bishop Festo of Uganda, he, stand, and he preaches and, oh, and they're just recording several thousand became Christians that day. Um, oh, right. Wow. And I have to say, it's done my heart much good reading about this, because I think for those of us who are Christians, sometimes, we'll come to that later, but sometimes we'll, um, we need, we just need those encouragements. We need reminding that God wants people to be saved, that the Lord is a saviour, that is his character, that is his heart. And sometimes just in the business of our own lives, perhaps discouragement, our world shrinks and shrinks and shrinks down a little bit. And we just need reminding, hold on a minute, <laughs> hold on, our God, he's the saviour of the world. The world's a big place. And one, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 2 is one of those passages which really sort of slaps you around the face with that. Particularly, you come to in the middle of it, verse 4. This is good and pleases God our saviour who wants all people to be saved. And uh, it's been an encouragement to me reading about East Africa and looking at this passage indeed as well. If I can put it in these terms, if it's not irreverent, the beating heart of our God is that he wants everyone to be saved. That's what he's like. That's who he is. And in this, as in all things, he wants a people who are like him. God is a saviour. I mean, that in many ways is the great stress of this letter, 1 Timothy. Uh, we've been looking, um, uh, it's unusual in Paul's writings, but uh, recurrently in this letter, he refers to the Father as saviour. So chapter 1, verse 1, God is a saviour. We have it today, chapter 2, verse 3, God our saviour. We'll get to it in chapter 4, verse 10. He is the saviour of all people. But there are clearly some false teachers in town who are distracting from that. So uh, we've looked at this, but uh, Timothy was commanded or told, Timothy chapter 1 verse 3, you, you just got to command certain people not to teach false doctrines anymore. They're obsessed, verse 4, with the minutiae of Christian detail, of myths and endless genealogies. And so Timothy is told, stop them and raise up other leaders who are going to remind the church and unite the church around this. God is a saviour. That must be the great stress and emphasis. So in our passage today, that comes out again because there's one little word that I think, I hope, jumps out. Uh, three little letters, and it's just all over the place. So chapter 2, verse 1, I urge prayers are made for all people. Verse 2, for kings and all those in authority. Verse 3, God wants, or verse 4 rather, God wants all people to be saved. Verse 6, Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all people. It seems evident that these false teachers are saying uh, only a very small number who listen to them have got the inside track and as a genuinely really God's favoured ones. Just a small elite that listen to them with their obsessive details about genealogies in the Old Testament. 
Uh, and in contrast to that, Paul wants to say, <laughs> stop obsessing about these details and don't say there's just a small elite. God wants all to be saved. This message of the gospel, it is for all people. God is a savior and he wants all to be saved. And so for you and me, we probably need to get out of the mindset, perhaps, that the Lord's only interested in some people and just probably a small number who are going to be saved. No, he wants all. And that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning. If we've got an outline, there it is. Uh, Pray for all people, says Paul. This pleases God who wants all to be saved, and Christ Jesus came as a ransom for all. All, all, all. That's what he's on about. Let's work through it. First then, verses 1 and 2. Pray for all people. I urge then, he says, first of all, that petition, I mean, that isn't all, but you know, whatever. Um, I urge then that first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgivings be made for all people. All. Now, prayer is the instruction, but salvation of all is the issue throughout the passage. I urge then, probably a reference back to the whole of chapter one, it could be to these false teachers, Hymenaeus and Alexander, in contrast to them, I urge you to pray for all, or, or just could be the whole chapter. But either way, given that some are limiting the grace of God just to a small group of people, in contrast to them, pray for all. God is interested in all. Pray for all people, all varieties. Don't be ist, whatever it may be. Don't be racist, sexist, nationalist, elitist, dentist, I don't know, whatever. All the ists, don't be... um, (laughs) Uh, obviously not, um, don't, don't, don't limit it down in any way. Pray for all types, all nations, all races, all classes. Pray for everyone with all types of prayers. Now, you can, I wouldn't worry too much about the difference in language. The overlapping terms, petitions, normally requests for things you lack, prayers, more general term, in- intercession um, for other people, thanksgiving, this thanksgiving, but I mean, but they're overlapping terms. Basically, all sorts of prayers for all sorts of people is what he's saying. Don't be narrow. Don't be self-absorbed. Pray widely. It struck me reading this, and we've yet to implement anything about it, but um, in our own household, we used to be much better as a family at uh, daily uh, praying for persecuted Christians through the Open Doors little uh, booklet and praying for one of our mission partners at church every day over breakfast. Now life gets busier and more chaotic. Children are less eager to get out of bed. Um, all these things, you know, you're just a bit more exhausted and tired and you realize, oh, I don't think we do that so much. Prayers become, as a family, a little more narrow for us and our needs, the obvious things, you know, pray for the Eustaces, pray for the Myrings in, in hospital, but not global, <laughs> and not for the salvation of all so much, and um, when you do something about that, ask me, if you've done anything about that in, in a month's time, feel free. One group here is emphasized, though, in particular, for those in authority, verse 2, pray for kings and all those in authority, well, it's easy not to bother, isn't it? I mean, at church, we're quite good because we know we should do it. We, we know this passage. Should we, you know, wh- rightly pray for Rishi Sunak and other leaders? And, but sometimes it's quite easy not to bother because they're beyond the pale and you don't really, you know, not, not 
enough. Um, you know, but some, some, it's easy, it's just, and it feels distant. Pray. I think pray all kinds of things for them. But in particular, the reason here is, um, well, pray for all those in the authority that we believers may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, don't get confused. He's not saying pray that we can have peace and quiet. This is not like, you know, me on a Saturday afternoon, can I have some peace and quiet? Um, not, Not that. It's a relational sense here, peace and quiet, in order that you can live godly and holy lives. And uh, let me labor this a little bit because it actually becomes very important in the next passage, this little word about quiet. It is how you relate to someone, quiet lives. So let me give you two other cross-references from, uh, from Paul. So 1 Thessalonians, verse, uh, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he instructs the, uh, I don't know if you, if, yeah, they're big enough. He instructs the, uh, the, the, the Christians to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. And I take it those, those are interpreting those little clauses, interpret one another. He's not saying to all Christians, be quiet. When you go to work, never say anything. Just get on with your labor with your hands or your, your typing, because elsewhere Christians would be encouraged to speak. But quietly, it's a relational term, not disruptive, not causing needless offense. Or, or the other helpful example, I think, a slightly longer one, Acts chapter 21, don't need to do the details. Paul is, um, he's got a, he's, there's a baying mob after Paul. And um, because he's, he's a Jew and the Jews are saying, what is this man doing? And he's, he's telling us about Jesus and we hate him and they're trying to rip him apart. Uh, there's a crowd going for him. So we're told when he came to the steps, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. But when they were silent... He addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Aramaic, saying, brothers and sisters, hear the defense I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became very quiet. Now, quiet is the word we're interested in. But you see what's happened there. He stands up, and they were silent, and then they become quiet. The very is actually not in the Greek text. They don't know how to translate it. Because how can someone go from being silent to quiet? Um, You know, if you're a teacher in a classroom, be silent. And be quiet. Um, the point being, they're silent so they hear him. They're quiet, they calm down. They're no longer banged for his blood. That is just the sense of this word, quiet. It's a relational sense. I tell you all this just, one, because it's here. So next time, when we get to, in church, women are to be quiet, it'll have some pertinence when we get to that. It's a re- how we're relating to one another. But, quiet. So in other words, he's saying pray for those in authorities that Christians can get on with living their lives free of unnecessary conflict. Not that it's, I mean, always going to be that way. He'll write to his second letter, uh, uh, Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, everyone who wants to live, live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted at some point. But his prayer here is in line with when we get to chapters 5 and 6 of 1 Timothy. He's concerned that believers live in such a way that the reputation of the Lord is not slandered. So pray for your leaders that you can live in such a way without needless conflict. And the reason for that, once again, is verses 5 and 6. Excuse me, um, excuse me, uh, verse 3. It pleases God 
our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Pray that Christians can live godly, respectable lives, accepted in their community. Why? Not so that life is easy, but so they can share the gospel message. That's why. Every five years, I don't know if you know this, every five years now, uh, there's a, a survey done, uh, I think it's Gallup, um, uh, amongst Christians and non-Christians. It's called Talking Jesus. So 2017, 2022, uh, the last one, and uh, they published it fairly recently, all the, all the data. It's, it's lots of interesting stuff about Christians and how seriously they take their faith. Some of the most interesting stuff, for my money, is um, uh, they do good sampling, cross-section of the population. You know, it's, it's Gallup, so they, they know what they're doing. Um, uh, what do people who are not yet Christians make of Jesus and, and the church? And there's all sorts of incongruous things in there. 20% of the UK population believe that, G- that Jesus was literally God walking on the planet. What? I mean, why don't you do something with that information then if you think that's true? I mean, it's just, so everyone lives sort of inconsistent lives. But um, I thought it was interesting. 53% of the nation um, say they know a Christian. 62% think that Christians are friendly. 50% that, that Christians are caring. Now, if you're here this morning and won't call yourself a Christian, make of that what you will. Um, um, hopefully, you're here because you like someone, and so you, but let's not prejudge it. Um, but it's amazing that. It's generally favorable. Would you assume that from the media coverage? There's other interesting things. 33% of people who are not yet Christians, once they'd had a conversation about Jesus, said, I want to know more. Just interesting. So a third of all those that anyone you talk to about Jesus, oh, I'd like to know a bit more, please. Uh, 51% said after their Christian friend had spoken to them about Jesus, said, oh, it deepened our friendship. We moved it on to a deeper level. It was a good thing. Now, stats are stats, right? And there's always out, you know, you you could be not in the... That's just interesting. And so Paul's saying, when you pray, and one of the things you pray for your leaders, pray that Christians can get on with just living in their communities and speaking to people. And at the moment in the UK, God has answered that prayer, and there's still enormous opportunities to do just that. A third of, if you're a Christian here, a third of those, on average, on average, a third of those you speak to about Jesus will say, oh, can I know more, please? And half your friends will say, well, that's, I don't know what I make of that. But we're better friends now for having had the conversation. Isn't that good? God has answered this prayer. Keep praying it, I think. Pray. Pray that Christians can get on with living godly lives so that people are saved. That's the point. So pray. Pray for all people. Let's push it a bit further. This pleases then, second little thing. This pleases God who wants all to be saved. Now, I think verses 3 and 4 are lovely, and you just need to bathe in the warmth of their sunshine, which is a metaphor that might actually work today because the sun is out. But This is good, says Paul, and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That is what God wants. Let me just say that again. God is a Savior who wants, desires, wills, all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's what he's like. Now, if you're a Christian, most, most of us straight away think, yeah, but, <laughs> but, 
I mean, certainly in our cultural moment, and in this country, most people are not saved, are they? So what, what, what does that even mean? Well, well, that is true. Even in the letter of 1 Timothy, Paul will caveat it. You know, so chapter 4, verse 10, we'll get there eventually in a few weeks' time, but chapter 4, verse 10 is interesting. We put our hope in the living God, who's the saviour of all people, and especially those who believe, or in particular those who believe. His disposition, disposition is a saviour of all people. It's effective, of course, for those who believe. So then what do we say? God desires all people to be saved, but they're not all saved. Why? Is he feeble? Is he the bus driver who occasionally draws up and says, sorry, you can't get on, the bus is full. I've only built so many houses in heaven. No, obviously. Broadly, people go two ways with this. So some Christians assume, okay, it's clear, God desires all people to be saved. But he also gives people free will, the ability to choose. An Arminian system, you'd technically call it. But so God desires all people to be saved. But more important to God is that he desires everyone to have a free choice. And so this desire trumps that one. So some would put it in those terms. I think closer biblically, in a way we don't quite understand all the details, the Lord desires all to be saved, yes. And yet for some reason that we don't fully understand, he doesn't enforce that. It is better somehow that not all are. Even though he desires this, he'll do this. But this is his disposition. My disposition is, if my alarm clock goes off at four o'clock in the morning, I am very annoyed. Who has played with my alarm clock? I don't want to get up at four o'clock in the morning. But if I've got a flight at 7 a.m. and I need to be there two hours in advance, I, on those occasions, desire my alarm clock to go off. That's my disposition. But there are occasions where this is, trumps that. I desire this. But it's not my default setting, right? The default setting of the Lord is he desires all to be saved. And yet, and yet, something somewhere is more important. Now, I don't suppose we should be entirely thrown by that. Oh, let me just demonstrate a couple of slides on that. Um, so we have this here. God wants all people to be saved, and we're told 1 Timothy 4, come to a knowledge of the truth. His second letter, he'll put it in similar terms, Pray that God will grant people repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. How do people come to the knowledge of the truth? God has to give them repentance. It's not that they have free will. God gives it. It's the point there. So why would he do that? Why, on the one hand, would God want all to be saved, and yet, on the other hand, not enforce it? It's better. Now, other points, I don't think we should be surprised, because that's true in other truths, and we see it very clearly. So what about the death of Jesus? Is that a good thing? Does God desire the death of Jesus? Well, on one hand, I have a few little uh, examples, obviously not. So it is God's will, we're told, that all should honor the Son, Jesus, when he walks planet Earth. The work of God is to believe in the Son. What does God want? God wants everyone to follow Jesus. And yet it was the will of God to crush him. And those other references and acts, God deliberately decided to crush Jesus. So does, 
does the Father want Jesus to be followed? Yes, that is his desire. Does he want him to be rejected and killed? Yes. Huh? This is his default setting. But in order to achieve greater good, he desires this. Does God want all to be saved? Yes. In order to achieve a greater good, and there are hints in the Bible, the honor of his name, that his people would understand the wonder of his mercy, Romans 10. He'll enforce it. He desires one thing, but allows the desire of another to supersede it. Now, we can get that. We, can, we may not understand all the logic of it, but we can see that. History will give us similar sort of cases. So history tells of, the, of Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth I um, was deeply, deeply reluctant to sign the death warrant of Mary, Queen of Scots. So by all accounts, the, the, the records we have, uh, Elizabeth, on the throne of England, recognized a kindred spirit in Mary, Queen of Scots. There is a woman reigning in a man's world at that point in history, and there is a sister, and I'd love to get to know her. I'd love to see how it works out with her. I mean, we're the only two. I mean, she's the only person who could possibly understand my world, but she refused to ever meet her because she thought, if I meet, according to record, if I meet Mary, Queen of Scots, I'm probably going to like her, and at some point, that could be awkward. And so Elizabeth never agreed to meet. And when Elizabeth had evidence that Mary was seeking to overthrow her, she signed Mary's death warrant. Now, if any film, or she'll be crying, and, it, and I'm sure, I don't know if she's crying or not in real life. But the gist of it, the sense of it is true. I, I have to do this for the sake of the kingdom, but I don't want to. I allow one desire for a greater good to trump my own personal desire. Now, be careful. I, I, I'm nervous about that illustratively because don't imagine that the Lord God is in a cosmic quandary. What is best for me to do? I don't, he's, not, he's all knowing. He's all powerful. And yet the Bible reveals a God who desires all to be saved, but it doesn't make it happen. There is another desire for something greater. But don't miss the general, most days of the week, all things being equal desire, which is that all are saved. That is, again, if I don't want to be irreverent, but that is the heart of the living God. He desires all people to be saved. Do we? Pray for all people. This pleases God who wants all to be saved. And Jesus came as a ransom. For all, verses 5 and 6. His further explanation, uh, God wants all to come to a knowledge of the truth. For, because, verse 6, there's one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. There is one way to be saved from hell, for heaven, through Jesus. There is God, one God. There is mankind, and the only way that sinful mankind can be connected with the living God is through the one mediator. There is no other way. 
or let me put it, this is, doesn't quite work, but let me put it in these terms. Uh, not the longest bridge in the world, but I think possibly the most interesting b- bridge in the world is this one, uh, which some will recognise from Tally, um, which is the, um, well, it depends where you live. It's the Eresund Bridge, if you're, uh, if you're Swedish, and the Orosund Bridge, if you're, you're Danish, so slightly different pronunciation. Um, take your pick, and if you quibble my pronunciation, do you do better? Um, uh, well, one or two of Swedish heritage, you might be all right, actually. But um, it's the only way to get by car from Sweden to Denmark. I know you can fly. I know you could do that. You could go by boat. In a car, it's the only way. This long old bridge, you can't drive your car along the ocean floor or drive it off a cliff and hope you reach there's one way. I mean, it's a simple picture that Paul gives. There is one way that the Almighty God can be reached by sinful men and women. It's through the death of Jesus Christ to pay for all they've done wrong, to pay the ransom price, to connect. Only he can do it. There is one God. They're not multiple gods with their own teams, one God, one way back to him. So this exclusive faith, there's only one God and only one Savior, must have an inclusive mission, everyone. Because the only way anyone and everyone can be saved is through the one, Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, that's why I'm here, verse 6. I'm, I was appointed an apostle for this task of telling the, the nations, the Gentiles, all sorts of people. But you take a step back from this, it, it is pretty simple. Don't be, don't be narrow in who you pray for. Don't be narrow in who you think might become Christian. You want to become a Christian. If you're not yet persuaded, don't think you could never become a Christian. There is only one God, and there's only one way back to him. That's through Jesus. And so for you and me, if we're to have a heart like the heart of the living God, it must be that all people are saved. One man converted in the, um, the 1930s, East African revival then, was uh, uh, this man, uh, Festo Kivinegre. Uh, I don't know if that's quite how you pronounce his surname. But, um, and uh, uh, he went on to be known as the Billy Graham of Africa, which is a pretty lazy title for 54 countries, but anyway. But he was an evangelist who led tens of thousands to faith and became very good friends, actually, uh, with Billy Graham. He was um, Ugandan, became a bishop in Uganda during the reign of Idi Amin, and um, saw a number of his friends killed. You know, there's one momentous occasion. You, 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 so uh, I've enjoyed, I've not all finished it yet, but reading his uh, a biography of him, on one occasion he stands up to Idi Amin, you know, the, the, the deranged dictator, uh, pleading for the lives of some of his Christian brothers to be saved and sees them killed in front of him. And he himself is imprisoned and gets out again. His closest colleague, or one of his closest colleagues, the sort of Archbishop of Uganda, Archbishop Luam, is murdered. And at that point he, he runs for his life. He says, I'm, I know I'm next, and I think I can be more use overseas. So he flees Uganda for a period and ends up in London. And uh, the way he tells it, he arrives not long before Easter, and um, he's sat in church in London uh, one Easter on Good Friday. 
And uh, the reading, the first reading on the Good Friday service is, um, includes the words of Jesus as he dies upon the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And uh, Festo says, I just felt this overwhelming sense of Jesus saying to me, yeah, that's what I said to those who bang the nails into me. Father, forgive them. They know not what to do. But you can't forgive our mean, can you? What if, what if Festo, what if Idi Amin was one of those banging the nails in to my hands? Do you think I'd have said to him, so excuse me, do you think I'd have prayed, Father, forgive them, except Idi Amin, he's just too bad. He's just beyond the pale. No, Lord. Now I know that your boundless love and grace would have reached even him. So he tells us just sitting in this Good Friday service, crying and crying and crying. And so then he wrote this, which caused him a great deal of stink. <laughs> because I Love Idi Amin is a curious title for a book for anyone to write. But he means it in the sense of he is wicked, he is despicable, his behavior is abhorrent. We want him to step down. But the love of Jesus can reach even him. And I've been convicted by my Savior. I must pray for all. I must remember that Christ is a Savior who gave his life as a ransom for all. And if I'm going to be like Jesus, I need to care for the salvation of all, even him, even our mean. The living God desires all to be saved. And so for you and me, the point is simple. Do we? I mean, you come to 1 Timothy 2, and I think, enjoy the character of God. Enjoy as you look up and think and dwell and pray to him that his is an expansive love. He wants it to reach all. He cares for all. He's a savior of all. And let's become more like him. Let me pray. Hey, great God and Father, thank you again that this is who you are. And you tell us what you're like, that you are a savior who desires all to be saved. Yes, of course, we need to understand that rightly. But that is your heart, that all come to the knowledge of the truth, a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, would we enjoy you? Would we never conceive of you as small, niggardly, ungenerous, but an expansive, demonstrative lover of your, of your world and of the people in it? And, Father, would we become a little bit more like you, caring deeply, expecting to see more of the salvation of all. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.